want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. And I need to be honest with you this morning and tell you right from the beginning, this message will be the worst Valentine's Day message you have ever heard. It has, it has nothing to do with love or relationships. It's all about death and destruction and evil. I'm so sorry. So if you're here this morning and you're with your significant other, what I want you to do after this message, I want you to take them out to a nice lunch. Take them somewhere real nice like Culver's or Cracker Barrel. Uh, go out somewhere fancy and uh, so this message won't be so bad. No, but really today, rather than talking about someone that you love, we're actually going to talk about your biggest enemy. That's right, your biggest enemy. And no, it's not your boss or that guy in fourth grade who was really mean to you or even Tom Brady, as upset as we are <laughs> with him. No, our biggest enemy is a spiritual being named Satan. We sometimes call him the devil. And if you've been in church a long time like me, you're nodding your head like, yep, the devil, he's bad. But I think one of the issues of the American church today is that we often neglect the subject of spiritual warfare. We live in what they call a post-enlightenment culture, which means as a whole, our culture doesn't tend to believe in supernatural things. We tend to be more skeptical. We believe in things that we can see or that we can test scientifically. So unlike other cultures around the world, we don't think that often about the spiritual realm. When it comes to Satan, we, we tend to do two things with him. On one hand, we trivialize him. Like he's the little red guy on your shoulder with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. Or he's sitting on a throne in hell throwing a big party down there. Or he's just in our movies to entertain us. So we trivialize him. And on the other hand, we tend to ignore him. We have science and reason. I mean, if the devil exists, he might make me say a curse word every once in a while, but he's not a big deal. He's not actively hurting me. I mean, that's just the stuff you see on TV. But in both of those tendencies, what we're doing is underestimating Satan. And I believe that's a big mistake. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think we should fear Satan or blame all the world's problems on him. But the Bible makes clear, Satan is real. He is our enemy. And he is actively working to harm us. And we see that made especially clear in Revelation. In this letter, we get a much needed and balanced view of Satan. And in the chapters we're going to look at today, we get possibly the best glimpse in the whole Bible of our enemy and his strategy to oppose God. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Revelation, which we said is a revelation from Jesus through John to the early church, uh, these churches that were dealing with a hostile Roman Empire who were facing temptation from the culture around them. And this revelation was given to encourage them, to help them keep going. And, and we've established we need this revelation too. Like we too live in difficult times and need to be encouraged. And we, needed to be, we need to be reminded of the central message of this book. I've said it week after week after week. I hope you know it by now. The central message of the book of Revelation is this. 
You know what? Fear not. Jesus is on his throne. That's right. We're now to the point of the book where most of the events happening are taking place during the last several years of human history, during a period of time we normally call the tribulation. It's this time of intense suffering and chaos in the world, and it's also a time for persecution of the people of God. But what we'll see today is that Revelation is not written like a history book. You know, the Bible has different genres in it, depending on where you're reading. And the genre of literature that Revelation is is called apocalyptic, which means it it consists of visions and symbolic imagery. So so Revelation is not meant to give us this exact chronological timeline of events. While a lot of what we see does take place in the future, some of what we read refers to events that happened in the past or even things that are happening now. And that is true of the first chapter we're going to look at today in chapter 12. This chapter gives us the background of our enemy Satan and the reason for his hostility to the church. So here's the first thing this morning, if you're taking notes or mental notes, here's the first thing we learn about our enemy from these chapters. Number one, the enemy's eternal opposition. Look with me now, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now look, when we read something like that out of context, we think, what in the world is going on? (laughs) Like there's a woman giving birth on the moon and there's a dragon trying to eat a baby. This is bizarre. But one thing we want to do with the book of Revelation is we don't want to get lost in the details. Okay, everybody wants to talk about the horns and, and the numbers and what all that means. But before we can examine the details, we need to step back and get the whole scene. I mean, that's what we've been trying to do in this series. So let's step back and let's, let's notice here first that John tells us this is a great sign. This is not something that we are going to literally see during the tribulation. This is a symbolic picture meant to teach us something. What is it? Well, if we think about this picture in the context of the whole Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, it starts to make some sense. Think about the main characters of this sign. We've got a a, a woman giving birth to a baby boy, and we've got a dragon. Who who could these people be? Well, you may remember the Old Testament often describes the nation of Israel as the mother of God's people. And out of faithful Israel came the Messiah, Jesus. So the pregnant woman, we might be tempted to think that she's maybe Mary, giving birth to Jesus. But no, she actually symbolizes the people of God. And we said, of course, the baby's Jesus. There's a reference to Psalm 2. He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. 
But there's this dragon character with all the heads and the horns. Who in the world could that be? Well, thankfully, John is, is going to tell us who that is. So let's keep reading in chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accusers of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. John was so kind to tell us exactly who the dragon is in verse 9. He says, it's, it's the devil, it's Satan. And if only had John had told us what a lot of other things mean in Revelation, that would have been great. But we're going to take what we can get. So, so now that we know the three main characters, what is this vision about? Well, what we're seeing here is the backstory of the enemy. It's like in a movie when you get a flashback to what made the bad guy bad. That's what this is. We're seeing why Satan is so angry and so bent on opposing the people of God. Here's why. It's because he's been defeated. He's been defeated. He wanted to devour the baby. He wanted to destroy Jesus, but he couldn't. The baby was born. Jesus died, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. And then at some point, we don't know the exact timing of all this, he attacked heaven and Michael, who is an archangel, he gathered up a squad and like in the south, he put a, put a pretty good whooping on him. And it says there is no longer a place for him in heaven. So again, this is why our enemy is our enemy. He, he was kicked out of heaven. And sent to the earth and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan has been defeated. He has lost and he knows it. He knows that his time is short and so he comes in great wrath. In other words, he's really ticked off and he wants to take as many people down with him as he can. So his great purpose is to attack and oppose the church and he does a pretty good job of that. Every day Satan splits and divides churches over things that don't matter at all to the kingdom of God. He destroys marriages and divides families through temptation to sin. Or he simply leaves us to be comfortable in our spiritual apathy and laziness so we don't do anything for the kingdom of God. The point is, Satan is after you. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. And I say that not to scare you. Again, there's no need to fear Satan. We fear God and God alone. But we dare not underestimate him. We need to know our enemy. We need to know he is smart and he knows our weaknesses. He knows how to exploit them. The biggest mistake you can make is thinking you're safe from Satan's temptation. Let me say that again. The biggest mistake you can make is thinking that you're safe from Satan's temptation. 
Oh, man, I, I would never cheat on my spouse. I would never embezzle money. I, I would never just forsake and walk away from my church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, he says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed. That means, hey, pay attention. Guard yourself. This is why we need to watch for sin creeping into our hearts. We, we are weak and depraved individuals, and if we don't daily cling to the grace of God, we could be the next story on the news. It starts with a temptation, a thought, an attitude, then a small compromise, a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there, till eventually you bite the lure and the hook sets in your jaw. Guys, do not underestimate your enemy. He has always been and will always be opposed to God and his people. But the good news is that God protects us. And that's what the rest of chapter 12 shows us. is The dragon pursues the woman. God protects his people. Satan may tempt us to fall into sin. He may attack us, but he cannot take away our salvation in Christ. And his assault, it's temporary. It's not going to last forever because one day Satan will be thrown into hell. And let me make this very clear. Satan will not be the king of hell. He will not sit on a throne and he will not be having a party. (laughs) No, the furnace of hell will be hottest for him. He will suffer there worse than anyone. And even in hell, he will remain eternally opposed to God. So that's the first thing we learn about our enemy. Here's the second thing, number two. We see the enemy's coming deception. Satan has something big that he is planning for the last days, and we see that coming plan in chapter 13. Look with me at verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Again, we have all this imagery with all these details. Who is this first beast? In order to determine that, let's look at what we know about this beast. First, we we know he comes out of the sea. And this was significant because in Jewish culture, they viewed the sea as representing evil. They did not like the ocean, okay? Next, we see that he has several horns and heads with blasphemous name. He's like a leopard and a bear and a lion all rolled into one. And this is similar to a vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 where he saw these beasts that represented mighty kingdoms. So this tells us that this beast is going to have some sort of rule and authority in the world. Next, we learn that this beast does not get power from himself. He receives his power and authority from the dragon. So he is satanic. He is being powered by the devil. Next, we see that he has a mortal wound that has been healed. 
There's a lot of debate on what that means, but many people believe this is some kind of play on what Jesus did by dying and coming back to life. This is Satan's attempt to copy that. And it leads to this last point we know about the beast. People are going to worship him. This beast is going to be popular in the world's eyes. And he and the dragon will be worshipped by many. So who is this? Who's this beast? Well, a lot of people point out the fact that for John, living in the first century, a lot of what he's saying seems to speak of the Roman emperor. Was John describing the mighty Roman empire? Other people say, no, 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 it can't be. I mean, this is something we've never seen before in history. This has got to be some kind of future figure that's going to come to power in the end times. And the truth is, it's probably both. Both. I mean, how do you figure that? Well, I figure that because of something that John, the same John, also wrote in 1 John 2.18. Listen to this. John said, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now, many antichrists have come. Do you see that? Antichrist is coming, but antichrists have come. What is he talking about? Well, John seems to be saying that, yeah, one day we're going to have a full and final capital A antichrist at the end of history. But until then, we're going to see a lot of little antichrists. People and authorities who have the spirit of the antichrist. These are evil people who demand worship and, and persecute the church. And in John's day, yeah, that was the Roman Empire. The emperor actually claimed to be a god. He demanded that people worship him. And and when Christians refused, they were shunned and even executed. Throughout history, we've had a lot of other figures that have done similar things. And and I do believe that one day there will be an ultimate antichrist figure that will far surpass anything the world has seen before. Following verses tell us that this, this beast will, will blaspheme God for 42 months, which is three and a half years. He's going to persecute the church, and everyone will worship him. Everyone except those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. That's followers of Jesus. So that's the first beast. That's the first part of Satan's plan. Here's the second beast. Look at chapter 13. Jump down to verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So what do we know about this second beast? Well, first it has horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It seems to tell us that he's going to be deceitful. He's going to seem innocent on the outside, but evil on the inside. 
Next, we see that the goal of the second beast is to cause people to worship the first beast. So where the first beast was some kind of political authority figure, the, the second beast seems more like a religious figure leading people to worship through signs and wonders. Next, we see that he causes people to make an image of the first beast. This is similar to what the emperors of John's day did by commanding people to build statues and temples to the emperor. Except what's different here is this beast makes the images talk and kill people. And lastly, we see that this beast causes everyone to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead. Without the mark, people will be hurt economically. They won't be able to buy or sell. And and the mark, we're told, is the numbers 666. Now, I know no one is really interested in that at all, so we're just going to skip that part. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Of course, everybody wants to know, what is 666? What is the mark of the beast? This may be the most popular verse in Revelation, which is sad because it's really not that important. But what is the mark? Is it some kind of tattoo or maybe a microchip they're going to implant under our skin? Well, throughout history, you may know that many people have labeled things the mark of the beast. There was uh, the UPC codes that got put on our groceries, uh, the, the stripe, the magnetic strip on credit cards. There was the chip that they put in cars. And, and recently, I've actually seen uh, people seriously making the argument that uh, the COVID vaccine today is the mark of the beast. And look. I don't know much, but I am here to tell you today definitively that the COVID vaccine is not (laughs) the mark of the beast, okay? And I'm actually going to take a minute to explain why that is so that when we get five years down the road and the next thing is called the mark of the beast, we'll be smarter and know how to deal with that. So here's the first reason I don't think it's the mark of the beast. Number one, Christians will not get the mark. The mark is Satan's attempt to copy God's marking of his people in chapter 7. So no one who follows Jesus will get the mark of the beast. And I am quite confident that some people I know who have already received the vaccine are Christians. I think. Pretty sure. Number two reason I don't think it's the mark of the beast is because the mark is tied to worship of the beast. That means until we see the beast, there's not going to be a mark And while we've had some folks who fit the bill of the Antichrist, I don't believe anyone has existed to this point in history with this much authority and this much killing of Christians. So no mark, or no beast, no mark. And the third reason is whatever the mark of the beast is, it will be clear, okay? It will not be a trick or a bait and switch. It won't be like, hey, here's your vaccine. Oh, gotcha, it's the mark of the beast. No, (laughs) no. It's going to be apparent to everyone will know this is what the mark is. This is who has it because it's going to be required to buy and sell. Bottom line, we do not know what the mark of the beast will be, but we do know what it's not, and it's not the vaccine. It's probably the cell phone in your pocket. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) But what about 666? Whose number is that? If I say those numbers, am I in trouble? If I'm pumping gas and it stops on that, do I need to pump some more? I mean, what what does that mean? Well, you know you do it too. Come on. (laughs) You may remember that in Jewish culture, letters could be represented by numbers. So a lot of people believe, and I think it's clear that these numbers do refer to someone's name. And people have tried 
and tried to match the letters and the numbers. Some have said it was Emperor Nero or that it was some other emperor and even poor Ronald Wilson Reagan because he had six letters and all three of his names, right? The truth is we don't know. No one knows. John knew the people he wrote to must have known, but since then it has been lost. And it's interesting, uh, even Irenaeus, he was a church father who lived in the second century. So we're talking just decades after John. He's writing about this verse, and he actually says, I don't know what this means. (laughs) If he didn't know what it meant, we don't either, okay? But I think it's interesting that the number six is one short of the number seven, which is the number completion. I think this tells us that even Satan's best shot at harming God's plan will fall woefully incomplete. Because that's what this chapter is. This is Satan's great and final plan to deceive the world and harm the people of God. And he's going to use some crazy tactics. Scholars point out that his plan seems to be his own version of the Trinity. Think about this. Satan likes to mock God. We have the the dragon who's like the father overseeing the operation. We have the first beast who's like the son who had the mortal wound and came back. And we have the second beast who's like the Holy Spirit. He's leading people to worship the first beast and perform miracles. He's trying to rip off God's own plan to deceive people. And this plan, let me tell you, this coming deception, it will be effective. It's going to work. Because a lot of people are going to receive the mark. They're going to worship the beast. But it will not work for the people of God. We are not marked by the beast. We've been marked by someone much greater. Remember a few chapters ago, God's people are marked by the lamb who is victorious. And after reading all of this horror in chapter 13, we actually get to close this section with a vision of hope. Despite all the suffering and chaos that's going to come in the world, John gets a picture of God's final plan for his people. Look at this in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Think about what he just saw. Then it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. You'll remember the 144,000 a few chapters ago. We said those are the people of God who were marked going into the tribulation, and look at where they are now. They made it through, and they're standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, which symbolizes heaven, and they're singing, and they're worshiping before God. People get a little tripped up because they're called virgins, but in light of the Old Testament, this makes sense. Again, the people of God were referred to as a virgin wholly devoted to the Lord. Then in the New Testament, we're called the bride of Christ. So this imagery speaks to the church's devotion and commitment to Jesus. 
And man, these five verses, they're, they're so important. After all this talk about the beast and, and Satan, man, it's scary. It's confusing. So God gives us a picture of hope. He gives us a reminder of what's to come. So as these things happen, we don't give up and lose heart. Friends, chapter 14, 1 through 5, that's your future. That's where we need to keep our focus. A lot of bad things are going to happen. Our enemy is going to continue his eternal opposition. And yeah, he has a great coming deception. Many believers are going to suffer and die. But let's not get lost in that. Let's not get lost in the details and the mark of the beast and 666. That is not where our story ends. We're going on. We're going on to a better place. We're going to stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb and we're going to sing a new song. We may stand behind enemy lines now, but one day, We will stand with Jesus on the side of victory. And that's where we'll stand forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.